chapter 2, verse 8 says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Just repeat that verse. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So this is uh, one verse that deals in the New Testament with the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, it's it's a uh, good doctrine. It's a wonderfully profitable doctrine. It's a hard doctrine. Um, it's rough uh, to wrap the brain around it. Um, it's funny. I don't even know what brought it up last week, but we were driving Lainey and her little friend Samara home last week and just hear these little voices pop up from the third row back. It's like, how is Jesus God too if the Father's God? And so, uh, it's a good question. It wasn't that high, but... Uh, <laughs> oh, is it? Uh, but um, I'd encourage you to join us in the Equip School of Ministry in a couple months for that term where we deal with uh, doctrine of um, the Godhead. And so, but uh, tonight we're going to just dive into why this second person or how in Scripture we see the second person of the Trinity as uh, absolute deity, um, God the Son, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And it's, it's not all we're going to look at tonight. We'll try to tackle most of the rest of the chapter. But uh, one way to phrase this is, in Christ all the fullness of deity lives. Now this word fullness, if you've got a pen or a highlighter or something, you might just circle it or underline it, it means that there's uh, all of the contents, all of the completeness of the divine being or deity is in bodily form in Jesus. The word deity or theotitos is a strong word and it's used only here in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Colossians chapter 1 verse 19 and chapter 2 verse 9 where it speaks of Christ's essence as God. Now, if you'll flip back or I think we might have the verse there Jenny, John 1:14, John chapter 1, in fact, John's whole gospel uh, the the theme of it is to point out the deity of Jesus. And in John 1:14 it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, let's just hop back one chapter in our Colossians book to chapter 1, verse 19. And we'll see that word fullness again. Colossians 1, 19. For it pleased the Father... That in him, context is Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. Now this is a study that is piggybacking uh, the chapter 1 study uh, where we went into it. Uh, and so uh, we're seeing, part, I'm kind of robbing notes from that chapter as well. But it pleased the Father that in Jesus all that fullness or completeness the end of the divine being, deity in bodily form, should dwell. 
in other words, the father delighted and enjoyed that in Jesus resides the fullness, completeness of deity. Now, the, uh, if you look at uh, Philippians 2.6, it says that Jesus was in the form of God. And he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. I don't know if you guys remember your your little rough around the edges days, you know, where you might have stolen something or downloaded something you shouldn't have downloaded or and you're trying to justify, you're trying to oh, I, you know, I you know, I, I cheated on a test or I cheated on my taxes or I'm, you know, getting paid under the table or and you're just kind of like, oh, there's just things that I'm doing that I just don't know if I you know, I'm kind of robbing this, or I'm kind of cheating here. I mean, you know, and you're just, you know, oh, better turn my ringer off. <laughs> uh, learn from me, Shannon. Um, you know, and, and you've just got this error of conscience. And yet Jesus didn't have that, Philippians 2 is telling us. When he was claiming deity, and when the Jews knew that he was claiming deity, and so they called out blasphemy, he didn't have an error of conscience that, There was no consideration of robbery when he claimed an equality with the Father. Now, Isaiah 53, a messianic psalm, tells us that it pleased the Father to bruise Jesus. It delighted the Father to, um, at one point, bruise him for the iniquities of the world. And yet, here we see that it also pleased the Father that in him all the fullness of the Godhead would dwell. Uh, one theologian writes, Colossians 1.19 and 2.9 are two of the most powerful descriptions of Christ's deity in the New Testament. This word Fullness, which is pleroma, is a key word in Colossians, and it means completeness. Now, these aren't the only two verses in Colossians where Paul is just driving home the supremacy of Jesus. Therefore, he is also sufficient for all things in redeeming us from our sin, atoning for our sin, sanctifying us out of our sin, and completing us until that day. Um, Remember chapter 1, verses 16. Um, Just flipping back a chapter. Verses uh, 15 through 18 speak all about his deity, that he is the image of the invisible God, or the icon, or the exact likeness of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Remember, firstborn, don't get tripped up by that. Uh, It means first ranked, and it speaks of his status over all creation. For by him all things were created. By Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him all things consist. And then it speaks into his preeminence over the church. And so um, this fullness speaks of the completeness of deity in Jesus. Uh, Bishop Lightfoot wrote this word fullness. You'll notice I'm kind of going on a little bit about this fullness stuff. It's a recognized technical term in theology. 
and it denotes the totality of the divine powers and attributes. A.T. Robertson, a Greek scholar, said uh, the Gnostics, by the way, if you don't recall who the Gnostics, starts with a G, Gnostics in the Greek, it means to know. Uh, it's the cult that Paul is dealing with here in uh, Colossians and in 1 John that John is dealing with. Uh, th this cult distributed divine powers among various aeons or um, different little, basically little raindrops from heaven, if you will, kind of like Jesus was almost like this raindrop essence from heaven. And, and that's kind of what Jesus was rather than this completeness of uh, the Godhead in bodily form. And, and so Robertson writes, the Gnostics distributed the divine powers among various aeons, but Paul gathers them all up in Jesus Christ for a full and flat statement of the deity of Christ. Um, Jenny, what do we got back there? Do we have Hebrews 1.8, Matthew 1.23? I'm trying to remember. This was a week ago I entered all these scriptures. And so... Uh, Hebrews 1.8, sweet. To the Son, so this is a quotation of date from David. To the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, incredible passage. I remember when I was in Bible school, um, we had someone pretending to be uh, um, maybe like uh, a Jehovah's Witness or something and and sitting up on the stool, and we would share and kind of dialogue. And, and I just remember from my class that it came to me, and I was supposed to dialogue, and I was like, ah. And I just remember the whole class going, Hebrews 1.8, Hebrews 1.8. And it took me there because Jesus went there in the Gospels also, uh, where he's, he's, he's quizzing the Jews about who Jesus is, who he is. And he says, how is it that David writes about God the Father saying to God the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And it uh, tripped them up there in that question. Uh, it's a speaking of Jesus' deity. In Matthew one twenty three, it's a quotation from Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So, uh, prophecy over Jesus' life, that his name is translated, God is with us. John 10, 30 and 38, Jesus says, I and my Father are one. Later on in verse 38, uh, he says, if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works. I know that was kind of hopping in the middle there, but this is the key I wanted to touch on that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Or 2 Corinthians 5.19, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Or 1 Timothy 3.16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. What was that? God was manifested or made an appearance in the flesh. Uh, goes on to say there, uh, justified by the Spirit, seen by the angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on the world, received up in glory. Or Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great 
God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 John 5.20 And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So, in him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. Okay, Godhead, three in one, triunity, trinity, three persons in one Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. David Guzik says, this is a dramatic, airtight declaration of the full deity of Jesus. Since all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus, he cannot be a halfway God or a junior God. This word Godhead speaks of, uh, Guzik goes on to say, Paul is declaring that in the Son there dwells all the fullness of absolute Godhead. Godhead. There were no mere rays of divine glory which gilded him lighting up his person for a season with splendor, not his own. But he was and is absolutely and perfect God. The apostle uses theotis to express this essential and personal Godhead of the Son. That was a theologian named Trench who's cited in Weiss Greek um, lexicon. But then just take your pen and maybe just lightly underline the word bodily here bodily it's an interesting word isn't it (laughs) usually like bodily fluids or (laughs) you know um but here just you know i think of uh i think of hebrews 10 quotes psalm 40 and this is one of my favorite christmas time passages where david writes of and this is incredible it's it's a christmas time passage because what you have is a scene of heaven right when Jesus is essentially getting in the time capsule or whatnot and the hypostatic union is about to take place and he's about to be um, divinely placed into the womb of Mary and he says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire but a body you have prepared for me. For it is written in the volume of the book I delight to do your will, O God. And so you have the Son willingly taking on flesh, clothing himself in flesh, to go and do the will of God, complete the law. As I was praying tonight, I couldn't do it. You know, and and the Hebrews on their best day, without the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel, couldn't do it. Jesus came and did it. That if we believed in him, it's as if we've done it ourselves. And so it was in that body that was prepared for Jesus, that all the fullness of the Godhead resided. Not in some strange mystical sense, as the Gnostics declared. Um, A false teaching related to this in the early church was called docetism, which claimed that Jesus had no actual human body. He only seemed to have one. Another false teaching was called if I can say it right, Serenthianism. And it said that Jesus, the man, was separate and distinct from the spirit of Christ. And so it's good to have a good handle on the deity of Jesus. We'll go through that in school of ministry. 
uh, when we have just more time to be able to look at it in fullness, uh, because a lot um, depends upon that. A full and perfect atonement, blood that was shed for sins, who we are praying to, who we are worshiping. Angels in heaven aren't allowed to uh, receive the worship. In fact, they get, you know, they see John worshiping. They're like, get up. We remember what happened to Lucifer, you know. <laughs> it's like, don't worship me. Worship Christ. And then you have Hebrews that just makes this giant treatise that Jesus is better than anything created because he created those created things. Uh, there's a lot that goes with that. And so jumping off of that, naturally, from verse 9 of Colossians 2, we go into verse 10 of Colossians 2. It says, And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. I'm just now just having this thought um, after studying this for three weeks straight. Um, think of that. We've got Jesus who lived and walked on this earth. And one day we'll go to Israel together and we're going to stand right where Jesus stood on rocks that he, we're going to be on rocks that he was whipped and his blood fell. I mean, these are places that are just incredible. He was the God man, fully God, fully man. It pleased the father that in Jesus, all the fullness of the Godhead would die. Okay, we, we're, I hope you're, uh, just help me to get that, Lord. Help me to get that, how powerful. And then in that, you and you and you and you and you and you are complete in him. Like what an honor. What a powerful thing that we find our completeness in Jesus. <clears throat> you are complete in him who was completely God. Or let me phrase it this way. He is the completeness of God and we are complete in him. We got all that mushy junk on Facebook or whatnot about guys or their girlfriends or guys that won't talk to their wives face to face and they write it on Facebook. <laughs> you, know, you complete me, you know, or something like that. Just tell her, just tell her face to face. You know, I'm just, if you've done that, I'm just kidding. You know, don't feel bad, Dustin. But maybe make it more private next time. But... <laughs> Uh, but what I'm saying is, uh, we, can, we can say that to the Lord in prayer. You complete me. Because it's true. And he is the completeness of God. Dr. Kenneth Wiest's very literal expanded translation, this is what you want to read on your vacation, says it this way. <clears throat> and you are in him, having been completely filled full with the present result that you are in a state of fullness. Do we live life like that? Is our daily mentality, when we get out of bed in the morning, when we're going through times of depression and feeling inadequate and insufficient, do we live that I'm complete in Jesus, who's the completeness of the Father? We've been completely filled, full, with the present result. Right now, what's today? March 8, 2017. Right now, we are filled with the state of fullness in Christ. Now, 
This is also important. Because when we have completeness of Jesus and connection with him, it shows us that all other philosophies and traditions are unnecessary for completeness. I like what Damien Kyle, just an incredible preacher from Calvary Chapel Modesto, he would always say that when a, when a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon would come knock on his door and they would get down to the most important question of all, who do you say that Jesus is? It would come down to that at the end of the day, I don't know that I have any forgiveness of sins or atonement of sins and I've still got to labor and labor and work and at the end of my life, I don't know where I'm going and I don't even really know who he is. And he would just ask them, just so kindly, he would say, here's what I have in Jesus. I have in Jesus, according to the Bible, a God who loves me and gave himself for me. And his perfect life was the atonement for my sins. It washed my sins so far away that the Lord doesn't even remember my sins anymore. I'm forgiven of my sins. I'm declared righteous and innocent and acquitted in the throne room of God. And I'm sent out of that courtroom, not only with a, not, not with a blank slate, but actually with an inheritance and a bank account of righteousness now. So he didn't just bump me from depraved and in debt to a zero status. This judge of the high court through Jesus bumped me up to a righteous and rich with an inheritance undefiled and incorruptible in the heavens. I've got the hope of eternity. I've got assurance of salvation. My sins don't hold me down. The blood of Jesus has cleansed me from a guilty conscience where I don't got to worry about that junk anymore. And now I can serve him with joy in my heart. What are you offering me that adds anything better to what I've got? Nothing. I just got a bunch of rules and rituals and a trip to put on you so that you can just go back to living a life of condemnation. And I think that's a wonderful way to just lovingly share with someone, like, what could you possibly add to what I've already got in Jesus Christ in, in the Holy Scriptures? And then we can even have this very simple memory verse, I am complete in Him who is the fullness of or rather, yeah, he is the fullness of God, but who is the head of all principality and power. This is a couple times that, that Paul's mentioned this in Colossians, that Jesus outranks and has much more authority than any of the other angelic beings, whether they are faithful or fallen angels. And that Jesus is the authority of them all, not because he's the highest angel, but because he created those angels. He's, read your Hebrews. Hebrews 1, Hebrews chapter 2. He's better than the angels because he created the angels, and he's better than the angels because he became a man, and so he can sympathize with us in all of our weakness in a way that no angel has ever been able to. He's the head of all principality and powers. Boy, we are just cruising along, aren't we? We've got verses 9 and 10 down. <clears throat> all right. So that kind of brought us into the last of what we were studying last week, how Gnosticism is wrong. Fullness of God is actually in Jesus Christ. Now he attacks and tackles, is really the word I meant to say, he tackles the other 
um, heresy issue that the Gnostics were trying to bring in. Or th this was a special form of Gnosticism, by the way, um, that was a mystical Gnosticism. It was a legalistic Gnosticism, and it was an aesthetic Gnosticism. And so he, uh, he just dealt with the mystical portion of it, and now he's dealing with the legalistic portion of the Gnosticism in verses 11 through 17. Okay? Get ready to be excited. We're talking about circumcision. Verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now remember, he's writing to the Colossians who were Gentiles and they had not been circumcised. In comes this special type of cult that is saying that uh, you need to be circumcised if you really want to be spiritual, if you want to be part of the spiritual elite. And Paul is saying here, don't worry about getting circumcised. It's a different issue than what Galatians was dealing with. The Galatians issue was, if you don't get circumcised, you cannot be saved. It's, that's, it's different than what this issue was here. This was saying, you can't be part of this mystical, ascetic, spiritual elite unless you do this. And in, in the Galatians book, Paul says, it's actually, if you get circumcised, whatever Christ profit you, you've just lost it because you've gone back to legalism. Um, it's a different problem here. Uh, still bad uh, and still preached against, but different if it matters to you. Um, <laughs> and he's saying, don't worry about getting circumcised. That's already been done to you. Say what? How has it been done? It was done spiritually in Christ Jesus. When you were converted, there was an inward circumcision of your heart, which all throughout the New Testament is what the important thing is. Inward circumcision of the heart, where you enter into the blessing of the new covenant. It says that there was this putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh. So, you know, circumcision, it's the cutting off of the flesh, the male foreskins. And here we have a New Testament circumcision, which is a putting off of the sins of the flesh by this circumcision of Christ. The word putting off here, it's the noun. I'm not even going to be able to say it right, but it means a total breaking away from. There's a total breaking away from the sins of the flesh. And that's something that happens in Jesus Christ. Even back in Deuteronomy, isn't it interesting that the Old Testament actually said to circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Even back then when they were using the Flintstone, you know, you got Moses and Zipporah and they're <laughs> Flintstone and the little kid and Zipporah's like, what have you done to my son? Even then, the heart of the matter, it was saying, hey, this speaks to a deeper issue, your heart. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Deuteronomy a couple times and in Romans, a Jew is one who is one inwardly, is the heart of the matter. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter. Uh, Philippians speaks of this. Um, but then it goes on in our text tonight, verse 12, buried with him in baptism. This is verse 12, Colossians 2.12. Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So Paul says that these Gentile Christians 
find their true circumcision in baptism. Christians don't need to be circumcised. They need to be baptized. Not saying that circumcision doesn't have its profitability, but in order to be saved or in order to be a spiritual elite, not for those purposes. Okay, um, And he, he turns it to, but here is the call in the New Testament, be baptized. Um, baptism answers circumcision, but it doesn't have the same illustration. Baptism does declare the old man dead and buried with Jesus Christ and the, and the new man risen just as Jesus rose. Uh, our new man rises uh, in new life. And so Romans 6 illustrates this so greatly. Romans 6, 4 through 7. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Don't you love that? Like, I mean, Christianity is not a bummer faith. It's not, oh, died with Christ, crucified with Christ. And yet I live, and the life that I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God. We also get to be part of the resurrection. Just as Jesus rose in victory, Romans 6 goes on to say in verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. There's that kind of circumcision part there, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. A guy named Vaughn, don't think it was any of our Vaughns around here, wrote, the emphasis of this verse is not on the analogy between circumcision and baptism. That concept, though implied, is soon dismissed, and the thought shifts to that of baptism as symbolizing the believer's participation in the burial and resurrection of Jesus. Now notice that this new life, this life in the resurrection, comes through faith, verse 12 tells us. Faith is the conduit by which we tap into the blessings of the grace of God in his death and his resurrection. If you got your pen or your highlighter or whatever, you might highlight that last phrase in verse 12, that God rose Jesus from the dead. Man, all throughout the New Testament is saturated with the good news of the resurrection. There's rarely a time that the, an apostle would preach and leave out the resurrection. How about you for your sharing of the gospel? Do you forget to, to insert the resurrection in there? The apostles wouldn't. And I love the songs that we sang tonight. There was one of those songs. I don't know if it was the same one, the Awakened song that you did at the end. It was about the resurrection, right? I'm alive. How, what was the lyric? Do you remember? I think I've got it right here. Oh, yeah, here we go. Uh, oh, that's not it. I don't know. Wasting time now. Was that it? I'm alive because you're alive? Yeah, just I was just sitting there thinking, man, I love that our songs have the resurrection in them. Verse 13, good job, Paul. Man, paying attention, huh? Yeah. Might sleep during the sermons, but you're awake during worship, aren't you? <laughs> Just teasing. Oh, man, you're going to get me later, aren't you? Oh, Paul. He's just going to slap me. Um, verse 13, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him 
having forgiven you all trespasses. Now, you got to look for the, the bad news and the good news here. The bad news was that you were dead. You were dead in a form of sin that was called a trespass, which means you willingly crossed the line. And you had this uncircumcised state of your flesh. The good news is you've got he made us alive together with him. So you've got a God the Father and a God the Son action happening here. The Father made us alive. And it was with, not apart from, Jesus. It was with Jesus and this good news of a forgiveness of all that crossing the line. Forgiveness of the trespasses. Verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This word, uh, oh, there's so much just rich stuff about this verse. He wiped out is the first, and it can mean blotted out, or speaking of the elimination of a certificate of debt, whether that is broken rules or decrees that were then in turn hostile towards us. He canceled out what we see here, this written code. He wiped out the handwriting of requirements that were against us. This could be speaking of a written document in a legal sense, like the charges against a prisoner or a confession that a prisoner made and signed. Or it could be speaking of a written document in the financial sense, like a bank ledger or uh, an account uh, um, receipt of uh, an account balance. And so if one were to look at their account and they're in debt, they would be able to just say with sweat on their brow, there's no way I can square this account up. And what we see Jesus doing is he took that account balance that you got from the bank and he just wiped it out by what he did at the cross. Or if it was in the legal sense, which I'm not sure what would make you sweat more, the, the legal document that shows that you've got something against you or the financial, I mean, they're both bad. <laughs> Maybe some of you can share your testimony sometime of one or the other. But uh, then you can have a competition of whose was worse. But uh, they're both bad, right? And he basically took that handwritten ledger and canceled out the code that it was written in. And we too have a record of debt spiritually because of the law we couldn't keep. And we couldn't square our accounts. And that's a great way to share the gospel with people is to share even the Ten Commandments with them. And to share how they've broken even one of the commandments. James tells us they're guilty of breaking them all. And they're in need of someone to come help with that negative balance spiritually. Your bankruptcy. Uh, as Jesus wipes out our debt. Now, we know from the story of Jesus that it was the custom to write the written crime above the one who was executed. And so his crime was, uh, you know, I'm the king of the Jews. Uh, we know that whole thing. Um, and so that, we would have a similar sort of thing above ours. Should we be paying the penalty for our sin? Uh, and yet that was wiped out uh, all of our wrongs as condemned criminals. I love 2 Corinthians 5.19. We read it already once tonight in just a deity passage of Jesus that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Now why was God not imputing our 
sin to us because he was imputing it to Jesus instead. He was putting the trespasses on him. There's an old hymn, speaking of hymns, there's an old hymn, and hymn. It said, there was a time on earth when the books of heaven, when in the books of heaven, that an old account was standing for sins yet unforgiven. My name was at the top. There were many things below. But I went unto the keeper, and I settled it long ago. Long ago, yes, long ago, I said the old account was settled long ago. And my record's clear today, because he washed my sins away, and the old account was settled long ago. So long ago, our account was blotted out. You can think of a dry erase board if you want, or something along those lines. We just, just wiping it out and wiping it clean. And we see that as such a concept of scripture. In Psalm 51.1, it says, it's a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he went into Bathsheba. And he said, have mercy upon me, O God. This is a guy that just, not just committed adultery, that was about a year ago. He just got found out. I mean, he just was like, had his sins like brought before him. And so there's this total guilt. He's aware of his guilt. And he says, uh, have mercy upon me according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. And he says this, blot out my transgressions. You know, uh, David is going to be in heaven when we get there. And it's because he looked towards the cross. He looked forward to the son of David. He looked forward to the one who would blot out his transgressions. And we will be in heaven because we look backwards to the cross in the finished work. We have a a different sort of confidence because we, we know who it was and exactly how it came to be. But David looked forward in faith for the blotting out of his transgressions. And then down in verse 9, it says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Then the prophet Isaiah 40 in 43 says, I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions. Now that's wonderful in, in healing and soothing for us, but at the chief end of it all, our forgiveness and redemption, it says in Isaiah for my own sake, for the Lord's glory, he's in the business of salvation. And uh, Acts 3.19, Peter's preaching on the day of, or not the day of Pentecost, it's uh, there at the, the temple as the lame man was healed. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. So as we repent, we're converted that handwriting of requirements that was against us is wiped away our sins are blotted out and uh, ephesians 2 14 and 15 he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation listen to this having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances and so there's this wiping away of the handwriting of requirements that was against us. And then he took that handwriting out of the way. I just like the language here. Took it out of the way 
and nailed it to the cross. So imagine that next time you read the Gospels, when Good Friday comes up this year, you know, and you got the, the, the I forget what the technical language was of that, that charge above Jesus, and, and just imagine it just chock full of notes, chuck, 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 all these notes, you know, just hanging all over the cross, and it's all of those handwriting of requirements that were against us, nailed to the cross in victory. Um, let me read a couple versions. I think I have them up there. We're getting ready to close. We're only going to make it um, through verse 15 tonight. But uh, the ESV of this verse says, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Or the NIV, Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. Charles Spurgeon said, Each of the Ten Commandments, as it were, united with the rest to draw up an indictment against us. The first commandment says, He has broken me. The second cries, He has broken me. And the third, He has broken me. And all ten of them together lay the same charge against each one of us that in the handwriting of the law condemning every man or woman born while he remains in state of nature. And so that was the the law against us. F.F. Bruce says, it might even be said that he took the document, the ordinances and all, and nailed it to the cross as an act of triumphant defiance in the face of those blackmailing powers that were holding it over men and women in order to command their allegiance. He took it out of the way and nailed it to the Christ cross. One last quote by N.T. Wright. Paul, looking at the cross, saw there instead of the titleist, that was it, the titleist, that expressed the charge against all Jesus' people, he saw the written code that stood over against them, disqualifying them from the life of the new age, and it was God, not Pilate, that put it there. Uh, Closing out tonight, having disarmed Here we have them again, principalities and powers. Remember, we just read that he's the head over them all. Now we read that they've been disarmed, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So he's taken off all of the armory of these spiritual rulers and authorities, and he made a disgrace of them publicly. He made a mockery of Satan and the fallen angels and their plan. Now, the funny thing is, is that Satan thought he had the victory that day. I've killed the Son of God. I've brought his plan to absolute ruin. And the very first mention of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, says, oh, but the seed of Eve will crush the serpent's head. And in the process, he will bruise his heel. Jesus crushes the wicked one, takes off his armor, makes a public spectacle of them, and triumphs over. This word triumph is also used in 2 Corinthians 2.14, and Paul has in mind a Roman victory parade where the triumphant general leads the, the parade, and following in the back are all of the conquered foes in like a state of slavery, really being taken off to their death. And it says in 2 Corinthians 2.14, the same language, 
thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. It's amazing to think of the conquering power. I I remember John Corson talking about uh, a bully in high school who everyone was terrified of. And somehow at some point uh, after high school, the bully was in a car accident and he was paralyzed. And, and when John Corson saw him uh, in the community somewhere, he said, suddenly this, this man wasn't as scary to me as he had been. And it was, uh, he used the example of like a lion having his teeth kicked out. And he can try to gum you to death, but he can't maul you the way that he used to be able to. And in the same way, here we have Satan and he... He is still at at war, but he has way less power uh, than he used to because of his defeat at the cross. In fact, if I could just share a quick little story. Um, You guys, some of you know it, some of you don't. But um, I remember hearing this story back when I was in school of ministry um, about an event that happened at Raul Reese's church uh, down in California. Uh, Raul Reese, man, you got to see his uh, testimony. I think you can probably look it up on YouTube. But um, long story short, Vietnam vet, uh, you know, sent home uh, because he was a little too crazy over there and, uh, and in trouble and in drugs and in alcohol. And uh, his wife was about to leave him and they were having marriage problems and she was gone that night. And he just said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill her when she gets home tonight and I'm going to kill myself. And I'm going to end this. And he's sitting in his living room with his shotgun loaded, waiting for his wife to come back. And he turns on the TV, and Chuck Smith is preaching on TV at a, at a crusade. And, uh, and Raul Reese ends up, by the end of the night, down on the floor receiving Christ and uh, being changed that night. Little does he know, his wife was, at the, uh, was there at the uh, event. Um, and she'd been saved, and that's where she'd been going, was going to, going to church. But um, anyways, uh, now Raul is a pastor, long time, and you can hear him on the radio every day. But uh, if I can just give a little preface also to the story, uh, Terry Webb from Calvary Chapel Bend was the youth pastor at this church when this story happened. And I had to ask him, hey, I heard this story. And he goes, let me stop you there. Uh, let me t- Tell me how you heard it, and I'll tell you. if it, Like, he already knew. Like, this is something that happened. He was there, and here it is. Uh, one of the police officers that went to Raul Reese's church um, had picked up a man in the community who was obviously demon-possessed in like a biblical fashion of strong and hard to contain. And they were able to get him in the police car and get him in shackles. And uh, the policeman just knew like, this is going to be a nightmare of a day. I'm just going to go by the church and just, you know, resolve this the way that we know there's power. And so he goes, and the pastoral staff happened to be having their prayer meeting uh, at the time. And so uh, he brings in this, this uh, man, and the man, uh, you know, they start praying, and, and the demon manifests and begins speaking to all of them and telling them things that he knew about their life and screeching and breaks the, uh, the shackles. And, uh, you know, they, Raul Reese, part of his testimony, Vietnam vet and all this, but also a black belt in karate, um, uh, they're able to contain the guy in like a closet uh, while they lock, they just keep a barricade against the door and then they just take the afternoon to pray as this guy's thrashing around in the closet. 
and uh, and then as they come out, they're uh, you know battling hand to hand combat, <laughs> trying to just get this demon out, trying to contain this guy, and uh, and Terry, the pastor, and Ben, big guy, just tackles this man and puts all of his weight on him, and he's got him down on the ground. He's finally holding him down, and Raw comes up and puts his foot on the forehead and says, um, he's praying, and he, he mentions the cross. And he notices that every time, every time in this prayer time, I've mentioned the cross, this demon just starts freaking out. Until finally, Raul says, he speaks to the demon, and he says, you were there, weren't you? And the demon says, no, 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 I was and, and he says, yes, you were. You were at the cross, weren't you? Yes, yes, I was at the cross. Ah. And so, and Rawls says, then you know you were disarmed and you were defeated. And you, you've been humiliated. You've got no power and you have to go. And that minute, the man's body, you know, went limp and he came to and was uh, at peace and he was in his right mind. And that story always comes to me when I read of the power of the cross and how it was there at the cross that the enemy was conquered. They, these principalities and these powers were disarmed. They were humiliated in a public spectacle there at Mount Calvary when God laid down his life. He actually triumphed over darkness in the cross. And Peter mentions it as he quotes David that it was there that the enemies were made God's footstool. And so with that, Eerdman says the death of Christ was not only a pardon, it also manifested might. It not only canceled a debt, it was a glorious triumph. And closing with Alistair Begg, he forgave my sins, canceled out the written code, he disarmed the powers that seek to ensnare you and me, and to bring us to nothing, and he triumphed over them in the cross. This little passage will reward our future study. And that's where we'll close tonight. This little passage, verses 15 and 16, about the cross and what it did, it will reward the future study of any sort of legalism or asceticism that we think we have to do to be made right with God or to be made spiritually elite. So let's go ahead and stand together.